Welcome to episode 179. Today we learn about how the science of reading and bilingualism is a perfect match. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Among the chatter about the science of reading, MLs seem to be lost. How can we help bilingual students become biliterate is the question many teachers have, including myself. Beyond the conversation around what's the best way to teach reading, we can center our conversation on reading instruction that bridges both languages. Alestra Mendez and Ana Torres from Amplify will share the research findings and provide a description of a bilingual literacy lesson towards the end of the conversation. Now, on to today's podcast. Buenos dias, buenas tardes, buenas noches, wherever you are. Bienvenido al podcast. And I want to uh, welcome you to and introduce you to Miss Ana Torres and the future Dr. Lester Menendez. Bienvenido a dos. Let's start off with briefly telling us, uh, each of you, where, how you spend your days, where you spend your days, and your proudest professional achievement. I can just tell you yesterday what I did, um, and that would give you kind of a snapshot of what I do in my in my life. So yesterday, um, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, former dual immersion teacher. Um, I went down to Santa Barbara to work with dual immersion teachers. Meanwhile, I had a couple of webinars. Um, so I did those from my hotel room. One of them was for leaders and administrators all over Latin America who wanted to learn about the science of reading. Well, in these schools um, internationally, we have a lot of Spanish language arts teachers. So I had another webinar um, with teachers who teach Spanish language arts um, in South America, Central America, um, in the Caribbean, uh, and they attended my webinar. And I've been talking a lot about the science of reading and what that means um, for monolingual Spanish students, for bilingual students. Um, and so it's been it's been very exciting. Uh, I went ahead and closed my um, laptop after my last webinar, which was with a school in Illinois, Champaign, Illinois, also using um, you know, English and Spanish um, to really ensure that their students are biliterate um, and, and, and went over to that school in Santa Barbara and worked with teachers. <laughs> so that's a typical day for me. I'm working across the nation. Um, I've been really excited because I've been doing a pilot with teachers in Arecibo, Puerto Rico, which has been phenomenal um, just to see those teachers also taking up the science of reading, which is now a movement as well um, on the island of Puerto Rico. Um, I would say for me, one of my proudest moments, um, I've, I've been in the multilingual space for uh, also 25 years. Um, and I started my teaching um, on a small island uh, in Hawaii called Molokai. Um, our students were ling linguistically diverse. They come from a beautiful, rich background of um, not only English in the household, but also Hawaiian in the household and a combination of thereof, um, where students sort of use uh, a code where they're using Hawaiian words um, in the English language, Hawaiian syntax. It's a beautiful, beautiful language. Um, 
I was invited to come to a Future of Schools conference in Hawaii, and filling up the conference room were teachers I'd worked with, um, administrators I had known over the years, and I just felt like it was like such a homecoming because they were all coming to attend my session, little old me, teacher from Hawaii, um, of the science of reading and what that means to support literacy in, um, in the islands. So for me, that was just like coming full circle. You know, you start out as the teacher, you get a little bit of expertise, and now you're working with your colleagues and just sharing, and it was fabulous. So my Kai. <laughs> I am actually a biliteracy specialist with Amplify. And that has been a really great transition to my education journey. I've been in education 25 years, and most of that time has been in biliteracy spaces. And so I am so excited to be on this podcast to really talk about it. It's a passion of mine. I could talk about this all day. And it's nice that I am actually a biliteracy specialist, so I get to be in that space all of the time. But I'm also in that space all of the time in my personal life as well. I am a proud um, Latina, I'm a proud Panamanian, and so <laughs> interacting with family, friends, um, and so we're always talking about literacy, um, and so, but my proudest moment, um, to, to your point, Ton, was I, I'm, you know, I'm originally from Panama, moved to New Orleans, but lived in Austin for about 11 years, had to move, and I moved back. I was a, an assistant principal at a Spanish French immersion school, which I remember terrified me because I'm like, hey, I can be I can do the Spanish side. But the French side was really like, what do I know about French? But what I can tell you is it was such an enriching experience to be in a school where language was just taught and language just French and Spanish like flowed in the classrooms, not only with staff, but with the, the children and with parents. And so the commitment of parents to actually put their children in a school setting like that was really energizing for me. And I think that continues to like put passion in my heart about language in general, Spanish, of course, being my first language, but being in that French space and having these kinder babies that were English speaking children pick up that French at the end of kinder was so amazing to me. And so I'm so happy to be on this call not only to talk about our Spanish speaking students, but just language in general and how using all of language for those of us who are bilingual is just so amazing and so enriching. And I'm glad that we've seen a shift in the national landscape of things that bilingualism is actually something to be proud of, you know? So she's the one that's traveling the country, going to different states. Uh, you know, call her the road warrior of the biliteracy world here. <laughs> I am the remote warrior. And so I, we both love the fact that we're able to reach more than just the U.S. We're able to reach, you know, I've done calls with Dominican Republic. I've done a call with Argentina. And so the fact that we're having reach globally is something that we're very, we're both very proud of. And so thanks for sharing the, the fact that we, it's, it's a bigger reach than just the U.S we're reaching other, you know, other countries as well. Thanks for letting me have that little time to say that. I got excited. <laughs> so both of you have lots of experience. Let's talk about what you quickly share with me, an experience that you've had in teaching that has really impacted your profession. My proudest moment, and I've had quite a few because as a little kid, I always knew that I wanted to be 
a teacher. I didn't know how I was going to get there when I was six years old in Panama. I remember come, my grandmother would walk me to school every morning and I'd come home and put my dolls in my backyard in, in her house and, and reteach them what I learned in school. So I always knew that I wanted to be a teacher. Um, never thought I'd be in the United States. But anyway, proudest moment was when I was in Austin, Texas. And so I come to education in the K-12 space by an alternative certification. I was in higher ed for 12 years first. So got a, you know, kind of detoured and did university administration work. And I remember God speaking to me and saying, I've always told you that you are going to work with these kids. So decided when I moved to Austin that I was going to get my alternative certification, got that pretty quickly, landed as a fourth grade teacher in Austin. And my proudest moment was actually kind of inaugurating a bilingual program. It was, it was only one teacher per grade. It was third, fourth, and fifth. And we were all excited and all in awe, but we were scared because our monolingual counterparts didn't understand why we were there. Where did these kids come from? Especially with me, it's like, why are all those Mexican kids following you everywhere, Anna? And I'm like, well, those are my students. But Anna, you're Black, yeah? But I'm a Black Latina. So anyway, all of that. Proudest moment, I had a little, I had a little boy in my class loved him his nickname was memo and he was labeled and he was in my bilingual class there were 25 students in that class um and i was a bilingual teacher meaning i am teaching uh native you know native spanish speaking students in english and in spanish and we were alternating that you know when we first started it was every other you know every week we alternated language and it was amazing to see the progress those students made but this one child was labeled you know, disruptive and challenging. And so they're like, Anna, he's going to be with you because we feel you can handle him. And just even those labels bothered me. All of that just bothered me. And so I took that as a challenge to really get to know this child, to figure out what was going on, right? And so the first half of that year from August to December, I thought I was gonna quit Tan because it was a struggle. He was a challenge. I didn't really understand ADHD. He was always tapping everything and hollering and screaming. And I realized when I went to my principal's office and said, I'm gonna quit if you don't take this child out of my class, that he was testing me to see if I was going to still be there and hang in there with him. And we did. We made such great progress because what turned around after that conversation with my principal was, he's testing you. Don't give up on him, right? And so I built so much confidence in a young man who'd never passed a class, had never passed a state test. And so through building like amazing community in my classroom of acceptance, he was able to believe in himself he loved us, we loved him. And that boy passed three out of four state assessments at the end of the year. And that built his confidence. And I think I say that to say, because I have a son now who has ADHD. And I say that to really reiterate how much impact we have in children's lives, how much trauma we can cause in them without even being cognizant of that. And so that experience alone is really the way I live. We need to give grace. We need to love. But within in this space, all we really need to do is show students that they can do it. And just turning the tables on, you can, 
made the difference for this young man because then he believed he could. Even when it got hard, oh my, sitting in a photo screen, I can't write anything. When I tell you he was able to write a full blown um, essay, because in fourth grade they have to write um, pair, like essays. He was able to do that and he passed that state assessment and he never thought he could. So long story short, it's about compassion. It's about grace. It's about just making students feel that they matter. And that is something that I apply not only in my professional life, but also in my personal life. So um, kind of taking a little left turn here. Um, so I, I have been a literacy specialist. I'd say most of my career has been spent kind of working with literacy. I've also been a curriculum developer in science, but I'm going to go to kind of a lesser known um, period of my career where I was actually a performing arts teacher in Hawaii. And, um, and I, you know, I, a big, big supporter of the arts and how students can learn through the arts. And so I was in on Molokai and um, teaching performing arts. And I think, you know, we can really infuse literacy into all curricular areas. I mean, it, it's a way of communication. One of the things that I was noticing with my students was that they had never had an academic background um, that reflected their own backgrounds. So I had students who, you know, came from Korean backgrounds, Filipino, Japanese, Chinese. There's a lot of um, Asian influence um, in the Hawaiian Islands and, of course, Native Hawaiian. So I worked together with our Hawaiian immersion teachers and they helped me um, to teach the students songs and dances um, from the Hawaiian culture. But I also started doing research on other art forms from Asia. And I can't tell you these students who had never seen in an academic setting their own culture and history reflected. Um, let me tell you, every child, like it looked like they grew an inch or two, you know, just standing on that stage, singing those songs. Um, so the pr very proudest moment, I can tell you the very proudest moment. I'm on stage, I'm you know, directing all of these performances. We're talking about the history of Hawaii through our performance of all the different cultures who have come and contributed to the arts and the food and the music and the culture. Um, I'm standing there peeking through the curtain, looking out at the families. So all of the families have come. Hawaii is a very family oriented, um, Molokai particularly, very family oriented culture. <laughs> so I'm looking at my students out there performing for their families and who's looking at me are the families and the way that they all kind of sat taller in their seats. Some of them were emotional and teary eyed watching their children be so proud um, to to learn. And, and you know, you're learned they were learning history and, and they were learning, of course, dance and song. But just to be able to present that and to feel so proud in their own skin, representing, you know, who they are. So, yeah, that was a, a wonderful moment for me. You remind me, your story reminds me of Dr. Sims Bishop's quote of uh, windows, mirrors and doors. You gave them through your arts a mirror into who they are. And they could see themselves again. So thank you for saying that, Hannah. That moves me. I appreciate that. So and that Tan is who she is. That is who she is. That embodies Alestra. <laughs> I think your story embodies you too. Like your spirit of like, si se puede. 
Sí se puede escribir. Uh, you, yes, you can write. I'm yeah. going to teach you how. We're going to get this. We're going to make this happen. And that's what's important. That's the, I think what you both talked about representation and can do is the, is the core, is the soul of our work with students, with multilingual students. So, whew, this is just, we could do this for hours, I think. But let's talk about your presentation, which I saw on Ebweb, and I was so excited to see it, and I love watching it. It's called it's The Science of Reading and Biliteracy, A Perfect Match. Let's, before we talk about your, pod, uh, your webinar, we have lots of monolingual teachers who work with multilingual students. What can they do, um, even because all three of us are multilingual, but what about teachers who are monolingual, what can they do to support their multilingual students? What can uh, monolingual teachers do? Well, I, and one of the things too that Alestra and I, you know, speak about at these webinars, which we love doing because it does reach a wide scope, is talking about the fact, and, and one of our like biliteracy principles too, is honoring like home language, that honor piece. That is to me one of the biggest things that resonates with us is that if we honor the language, we gain so much. So even being in an, and you know, I think sometimes the fear is of those monolingual teachers of, I'm not sure what to do. I'm not sure if I'm going to do it correctly. I say to you, honor the language. <clears throat> there are many languages that are, you know, many students that are gonna have many different languages in your classroom. Try to find out a little bit about those. It, whether it's Hindu, whether it's Spanish, I do, be, you know, it behooves us to learn and how we can make those connections. How do we honor that as teachers is showing interest in that. So not just living in our bubble of, oh, I'm just the English, you know, language arts teacher. Oh, I'm just the Spanish language arts teachers that we can cross as we talk about cross linguistic transfer later, hopefully we're all in this together to help all of our students. So if I could just say something simple to the monolingual teachers, the fact that you're going to honor those students' language, honor their community more than just, oh, you know, the food and the dress really understanding what language is, looking at commonalities in language. Like I know that we talk about cognates a lot, but that's important. I know that we talk about, you know, our, you know, morphology, but there's lots of, you know, ways we can cross reference that to really impact what our students can grasp. I remember as a, you know, when I was six and I came to this country, six years old, they were, you know, and I was, very high in literacy in Spanish, right? But there was nothing to actually really detect that or show the, my teachers that. So I was, you know, supposed to be in first grade. They're going to put me back in kinder. My poor mom is like, no, but she's my poor mom, doesn't speak language, hard for her to advocate for me. Luckily, I picked the language up fast because I was, you know, I was a high student, so I, but I was able to grasp anything I could in a classroom where nothing connected with me. What connected with me was cognates and gestures. That's what I was grasping for. There is too much research out there now in 2023 that we can do better. There are more curriculum out there, more programs out there, assessment programs, tier one curriculum. You know, there's so much out there now that was not out there when I came that we really are, you know, we don't really have an excuse anymore, right? 
But if I could just, res you know, just reiterate this again, monolingual teachers, start with honoring that home language. Honor those students, honor their language, get to know more about that. No, get to know more about that language. It will just make you better. Yeah, and, and I'll piggyback off of that honor because I think that really that is the heart of it. When a student feels honored and they feel that their language that they're coming with or languages um, are seen by the teacher as assets. Wow, you come with this language and this, you know, is, is part of who you are. And I honor that and I respect that. And I want you to use that language. If, you know, if, if we're, we're having a discussion or you're doing a writing prompt, I'm going to give you space to use that language. And sometimes I know that teachers can feel a little intimidated by that because, well, how am I going to be able to understand that? This is the bridge for that child. This child is first going to compose like Anna was doing. She was taking those literacy skills she had in Spanish, and then she was connecting those, you know, to what she's learning in English. I'm going to give you folks a, a resource I think is wonderful. It's called mylanguages.org. And um, as a teacher, I would go to this resource um, so that I could understand a little bit better what might be some of the crossover. So I, I speak Spanish and Portuguese. Um, and there are some similarities between English, Spanish, and Portuguese. So when I worked in uh, in Brazil, many of my students were native Portuguese speakers. Um, a lot of the letter sounds uh, in English are the same letter sounds in Portuguese as well as Spanish. So how can we help our early learners, you know, to bridge that? Like Anna, she knew her letter sounds. So she's already got some of the English letter sounds down because they're the same in Spanish and English. So we have to be very intentional about um, knowing what is it that our students already know are coming in with so that we can also help them to bridge to the second language that they're learning. Um, so yeah, check out mylanguages.org to kind of give you a little insight as to are there some things that are going to really help make positive transfer. Now, we also know that there are times where what you know in one language might um be actually contrary to the other language. For example, some languages we read right to left, other languages are read left to right. Let's take that into account if you have a child coming into your class who also needs to learn directionality for the English language. We have to really kind of be analytical around language. And, and that's fun. That's when, you know, as teachers, we, we become learners. Um, so if you take that attitude of, wow, I'm also expanding myself because of this gift I've been giving of this child who's in my classroom. Oh, there's so many things we could say. Uh, let's move to actually talking about your presentation. Let's talk about the first, the science of, what does the science of reading tell us about working with students who are bilingual? Love, love, love talking about this. Um, because, you know, if we if we just I just kind of want to want to sort of set the tone a little bit on the science of reading um because you know I've been I've been teaching since you know the last century um and uh <laughs> and if we look at you know how our students are doing if we look at literacy um in our nation you know we 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 need to think about this we need to think about why so many children are not being successful and particularly children of color, children who speak a language other than English, you know, and, and we need to get fired up and excited about doing something about that because all of us know, you know, literacy just 
is that stepping stone to better health outcomes. I mean, you name it, um, better job opportunities, uh, just communicating with a more more people in our lives. Um, you know, literacy is really giving us that that access. And so I'm super passionate about about this. Um, and so what I want to say is we want to make sure that we're providing science-based literacy instruction to our students, no matter what language, if they're monolingual, um, you know, Spanish uh, in, in Puerto Rico, um, they need to have research-based, science-based practices that they're doing um, that work for. Um, and in the U.S., where fortunately, um, I was never the recipient of bilingual education, sadly, I wish I had been, um, but for for so many of our children now who are who are given this gift of being able to learn two languages whether that's mandarin and english spanish and english you name it french and english <laughs> um we need to use science based practices now uh, some of the arguments um and, and and i understand and i respect the argument that well we don't have um we don't have any research to back, you know, that the science of reading works for biliterate or multilingual students. Um, and, and I will have to say that, yes, we have more research. We have hundreds of studies on the science of reading with respect to languages, monolingual speakers in Spanish and Finnish and English, true. Um, but there is a growing body of research that shows that even for students who are learning two languages, we need to make sure that they have sort of these two components, that one of the aspects of learning um, a language or becoming a literate um, person is to understand how to decode that language. So what we could think of these as the mechanics, right? When, when I'm looking at a page of, you know, uh, printed text, what is my brain doing to process that text? We need to wire that in our children because this is not a natural process. Um, and there's a lot of research as to what are the best ways to do that. We start with, you know, phonological awareness and getting students really to manipulate that natural part of, a, of our brain, you know, that just processes language. We're recipients of language. We receive language. We produce language. We use it to communicate. Um, so we need to make sure that that is explicitly and systematically taught, um, whatever the language may be. <laughs> but there's also this other component. And that's the comprehension of that language and building that, building background knowledge. So I think about it in sort of this way, as a classroom teacher, you know, you had that student when you were doing, let's say a read aloud um, or, or having a conversation or you, you showed a video and that child comes with this wealth of background knowledge. They're making all the connections. Um, they may be kind of using a little bit more of the of the talking space in the classroom. You kind of have to let's, let's have someone else have a turn because that child is just so full of rich ideas. And we want to honor that. But sometimes it's that very same child who you give them the text and they can't enter it. So is that child, you know, really going to be engaging in literacy or biliteracy if they've only got sort of part of the puzzle? Also, you probably have worked with students um, and, and I and, I, you know, this has always fascinated me, but you've worked with students and let's say you're doing a reading assessment and you're giving them a piece of text and maybe it's a fluency measure and you're going, OK, well, let's go ahead and, you know, for a minute, I'd like you to read this text or, um, you know, you're looking for accuracy. The child reads the text beautifully. 
And you're going, oh my goodness, look at, you know, you've got all this word recognition. You, you know, you just really beautifully read that text. Okay. So what, what did you just read about? And the child just kind of glances at you and they're just kind of going, well, they, maybe they come up with phrases or words, you know, that they kind of, that they're recalling, but did they comprehend what they read? So, you know, you can kind of see what it looks like if it's off balance, if we're only getting part of that sort of that puzzle. And so for biliteracy, I would want children to have that, you know, of course, the mechanics in both languages. Can I decode in Spanish or Portuguese or French or English? Um, but then also when I'm decoding in those languages, do I understand? Can I engage with that text um, um, in a deep way? So, um, I, Anna, I think I'll just kind of let you sort of take it from there, but I'm very passionate about this, as you can see. <laughs> and that is why, Tan, I let her go first, because she always sets the stage and is very passionate about, um, you know, the work that we're doing with really, you know, debunking like when our biliteracy counterparts do here by, you know, science of reading, it's almost like a bad word because it is construed in a way of, we're just teaching phonics, you know, and that is actually simply, you know, false, because it is evident, there's evidence and there's research that indicates that being systematic and explicit in teaching languages is of benefit. Now, is there discourse? Are there reading wars? There's always going to be that, and we are understanding of that. And as two Latinas standing in a space where we have been in spaces where we say those words and it's traitor, right? I'm just, you know, I am very transparent and Alessia's like, oh gosh, this is going to be on YouTube. It is, and it's okay. But I'm here to say that it's not. The way that I look at it and rationalize is just looking at my own life and being, you know, being a teacher and being in the space for so long, we need to find, I'm one of those, and Alessia knows me well, common ground. Let's find the common ground that we have. We want our students to succeed in the classroom. Let's not allow this reading war of science of reading and, you know, do we have new, you know, there's so much new research out there. And I think that is what is causing a little angst in some of our biliteracy folks is, Ana, acuérdate. You know, that research doesn't really include us in there and they're not wrong. So what do we need to do is find the research, find research from, you know, Dr. Lillian Duran out of the University of Oregon. Find research, obviously, from Dr. Elsa Cardenas Hagen, who's a speech pathologist who we work closely with. And that research indicates clearly, right, even for our, all of our multilingual learners, that systematic and explicit instruction is vital and important in both languages, right? So let's find common ground. What's that common ground? Science of reading is not just phonics. We're looking at the whole scope. And I think we can agree as what I like to call myself a multilingual advocate, because I'm still in there, whether some have dismissed me in the past because I'm science of reading now, that's not the case. I am an, I'm always going to be an advocate for students, multilingual students in particular. And our common ground is, I feel this research still 
it's phonics, it's phonemic awareness, it's grammar, it's writing. All of that should be encompassed. And there is research that indicates having all of that is important, you know, to uphold good reading instruction. So phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, comprehension, those are all our five pillars, right? For language learners. So common ground, one, hopefully I'll bring some friends back on my team. Multilingual, you know, students, they need teachers who devote, you know, time to growing that English speaking listening skill, right? And so as Alester spoke about background knowledge and how important that is, we don't negate that. So yes, yeah, science of reading is, has been perceived just to be about phonics. Again, more than that. And I all, you know, I really, what really resonates with me with the science of reading is really looking at that simple view of reading, at looking at those components as Alestra and I always talk about in our webinars, that word recognition and language comprehension are key. And then thirdly, if we're gonna benefit all the multilingual students, who are beginning and you know beginning as English readers? It's important that teachers know what to do. I think more emphasis needs to be put on teacher training because that is going to be where we're going to make the most impact. So let's stop fighting about semantics of who's on what side of the house and really look for that common ground that's going to allow us to actually put in practice you know, strategies like real and evidence, you know, based research that's going to help all of our students, you know, of course are multilingual. So my thing is let's stop kind of fighting about this. What side are you on? You know, what side of the fence you're on and build this common ground that we should be building for the benefits of our kids. Science of reading is not just phonics. We're upholding the five, you know, the pillars of language development. And let's make sure that we are really training teachers so that they are they're equipped to handle all of this because it's not easy to be a bilingual teacher. It's never been more so now. Right. But let's equip them. Let's support them where they need it most. Let's put our money behind that. So that's my two cents. Well, you just. Um channeled Rumi who said, beyond our ideas of right and wrong, there's a field, I'll meet you there. That was like, good, thank you, Tan. I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna have to get that quote from you. <laughs> it's from Rumi. You talked about what teachers can do with this understanding that there's a simple view of reading, it's more than just decoding, it's language comprehension. What can teachers do to help students comprehend the language, in particular, how to use cross-linguistic transfer? So um, one, one thing, we have this visual, um, and I can kind of just describe the visual, um, but the visual that we've been kind of sharing with educators to think about this idea of cross-linguistic transfer is if you thought of, uh, we talked, we, we use sort of Goff and Tumner's simple view as, as kind of our framework. If you could duplicate that, so let's say you have Goff and Tumner's simple view for English, Correct. So students are learning both word recognition and they're working on their language comprehension in English. And then side by side, they're doing the same with whatever the other, the second language is. Um, I'll use Spanish. That's kind of the world that Anna and I are living in right now with students who are, you know, by, in bilingual programs working towards biliteracy in Spanish and English. Um, the what we need to be thinking about is as the child is, you know, they they don't have a, a you know, two monolingual brains, 
<laughs> basically, right? They have a bilingual brain. Um, and so what's happening in their beautiful bilingual brain is they're making the connections between these two languages. And one way to do that, of course, is through oracy. Are, am I the teacher giving my children the opportunity to feel those words in their mouths, produce that language, share those ideas, um, and also their ears. Are they hearing a lot of representations of that language? Am I the only sole voice that they're hearing producing this second language? Um, because as Anna had shared, you've got YouTube, you've got books on tape, you've got, you know, community members, you have family members probably, you could invite to come in to be another model of that language. So that oracy piece, are they hearing and producing that language is so key. Another thing you want to really be cognizant about if you're, you know, you're still thinking about, okay, my kids are working towards language comprehension and word recognition in these two languages. How am I helping them be meta about that, right? Because anybody who's learned a second language, you use your first language to really kind of as that, as that foundation, as that kind of that anchor. And then you go, oh, wait a minute, this is similar or different. I'll give you an example. So I learned Portuguese as an adult, um, and uh, and and Portuguese is very similar to Spanish, but not all words are the same. Um, and so this is also this is also applicable to English. There is a word in um, in Spanish. The word is embarazada. Now, if I use that as a cognate to English, it's not going to work <laughs> because embarazada in Spanish means pregnant, whereas embarrassed in English means, yeah, you might feel a little like you did something you didn't want to do or say something you didn't want to say. You feel kind of a, maybe a moment of shame. You're embarrassed. Well, in Portuguese, embarazada means tangled. So I need to take my, my, my first, let's say my first language is Spanish, embarazada, pregnant, and connect that to embarrassed in English, it's gonna take me a moment because that's not a, you know, a, a perfect transfer, right? There's, there, there's nuances. Same thing when I take that word embarazada to Portuguese, that means tangled, like my hair could be embarazada. So, um, so I have to be very meta when I'm thinking of this. Oh, okay, this word um, is, is actually very distinct and I have to know the nuances of each of the languages. But as a teacher, also, we want them to have those meta moments of what is similar across two languages. So, so many things when I was learning Portuguese as an adult learner, um, I could use my Spanish to help me bridge to that. Um, I could I could understand that, you know, buenos dias is very similar to bom dia. Um, so uh, I could understand that hola, spelled H-O-L-A, is very similar to, yeah, to to hola um, or oi in Portuguese. So using that, you know, giving students that opportunity to be analytical, to notice, um, you know, where the languages uh, are similar or different, I think is so key. So I would say oracy in that when we talk about being very metalinguistic about your your languages. The way that I do that is actually I teach my students, like let's say like there's a grammar context and I, this is the best example. When I teach students um, the possessive, for example, like Ana's book, pero en español es el libro de Ana. ¿Y cómo, cómo se dice en, en Portuguese? Uh, 
Um, o livro de Ana. Is there a day in, in it? Um, uh, yeah, like Anna's, yeah, Gian. Gian, Gian means day, right? Um, day, yeah. Yeah, so let me show you a Lao connection. I'm going to connect Lao to Spanish and Portuguese because we don't have a possessive. We have the word Kong, and that's also used in the word in Thai. And so, do you see this? This is how like Latin America connects to Asian languages. And when, when I, so when I work with my uh, students from Japan and Korea, I say, this is how we say it, it possessive, possessive in English. It means apostrophe S. How do you say it in Korean? How do you say it in, in Japanese? How do you say it in Chinese? And the connection is they don't have apostrophes. All those Asian languages, they have the word of, mm -hmm. just like in Spanish. And the kids get that. And that's how, even though I don't speak Japanese or Chinese, or Korean, I'm making the opportunity to be metalinguistic. Because you're seeing connections to language, right? Just language in general and the interconnectedness of the language. And I think if we took time to do that, we can be in those spaces with students, even if it's not our own language, and we can make our own connections, right? And so just like yourself, Tan, you are, you know, look at all the languages that you've interconnected with your Japanese students, your Spanish, you know, speaking students. Um, and I feel it's because you've taken an interest in that, right? And to just kind of piggyback on Alessia, if I may, Tan, I'm sorry to interrupt because, you know, I get excited, right? As when she's really talking about oracy, because to me, that is one of the most important pieces of this pie. Cross-linguistic transfer, of course, being one of them as well, but really allowing for students to use that language in speech and connecting all of that is very important. And so, you know, you mentioned what can some things that can happen in the classroom to do that. Students and, and, and you know, teachers and students can model the various language structures as they're using that vocabulary in that language of instruction, because that's going to support their language acquisition that's necessary, right, to access that knowledge in that second language. Those collaborative structures, and that was something I remember even being a novice teacher, understanding how important that was, because I didn't get that when I was literally the sole Spanish-speaking student in a monolingual class that was literally just put to the side and said, you figure out how you grasp all of this. So having that collaborative structure, even though my children were bilingual, you know, native Spanish speakers, stretching them in the English on when we were on, you know, English week was hard to see them struggle, but how they were able to, and I didn't even know, I'm like, wow, I am doing some systematic stuff in the classroom, how they were able to take you know, those cognates. And, and I really spent a lot of time with morphology and pre prefixes and suffixes and having them make those connections. So when we were what, you know, when we were in centers and I would hear my students talk in both languages and folks would walk in my room and say, Anna, they're not, this is English week. Why are you allowing them to speak Spanish? Now, mind you, this was 2007 time. In my mind, and I've always been a rebel, I'm like, write me up, because this is how all of these students are making sense of language. And to me, what a beautiful thing that they were able to, you know, process in two languages. And that back in that time, translanguaging wasn't like a positive thing in Spanglish. And yeah, Ethan, why are you allowing them to do all of this? This is English week. Loved it. So providing that space 
of collaboration with your students and allow them that opportunity to practice listening and speaking in those languages. As Alessia's mentioned, that metalinguistic connection to any language they speak, they'll be able to make that connection with reading and writing, right? So, you know, having those flexible groupings of students. I would literally, when I then I became a dual language coach, hey, it's okay to pair up your non-native English speaker with your native Spanish and have them converse in their respective languages for them to grow. It's it's okay, but I don't feel like teachers were allowed that. It is separating both languages and we shouldn't do that. Like just basically what Alester said, we don't have two monolingual brains. We're using our language repertoire um, all of the time. So, you know, having students make sense of that text, rehearsing, you know, those ideas before committing to that. We need to give people, you know, those students time to think before, you know, and that's why I love think pair shares. I know that people are like, Ayana, it's just, those are viejos tiempos. No, those are still very powerful strategies, allowing students to think, then processing that with someone in whatever language they can process in. And then they'll be able to really participate in classroom and like core instruction, as we say. So that ORC piece is really important. And I think we don't realize how important it is, especially with our multilingual learners. We can't, um, you talked about language separation. We cannot take monolingual practices and apply them to bilingual settings or multilingual settings. We can't say, oh, esta semana solamente español. No, like kids are going to use any language that they're going to use to learn Spanish. We can't do that same thing when they go to Portuguese week. Like we cannot have them say, oh, mm -mm, this is Portuguese. You can't speak Espanol aquí. No? We shouldn't be doing, we should have never been doing that, but unfortunately, um, teach, you know, there's so much politics in education that we don't like to discuss, right? And so we like to look at it as a very purist, oh, we're, you know, we're here, you know, to honor students, but we don't always do that. When we tell students that what they say is wrong, like, you know, like what we call now, like no sabo kids, like, I don't even like that phrase because I believe in honoring language, regardless of where you're from in our, you know, in our Latin in different Latin American countries, we say things differently. And I think honoring that is very important. And as far as <laughs> translanguaging, which I feel we've been doing that forever and ever, it's become now a positive thing, right? Translanguaging is a beautiful thing now, but it wasn't always seen that way. And that is why I like to really, you know, I get really inspired by Dr. Jose Medina about, you know, let's let's cause that desmadre, that little chaos to really break that monolingual bias that we continue to have. Even though, yes, we're seeing more dual language programs come about and that is wonderful and we're seeing a shift, the work is not done because there are still monolingual biases in the structures of education that we still need to dismantle. And so I am, yes, Jose, I see you and I hear you. I am a desmad I'm on the desmadre train, sir, with you on this because we need to continue to shift, continue to kind of, I wanna continue to kind of ride this asset-based bilingualism ride, knowing that there's still spaces where we can do lots of work um, to really create more social justice and equity in our in our in our education field. We have we still have work to do in that area. 
Well, let's end with the two, the two questions. We'll do one, um, and then we'll do the other, and then we'll end. The last question, uh, second last question is one. Can you both describe what a bilingual literacy lesson might look like? Just very quick, quickly, what, what might that look like? It might start with this, then it might go with this, and it might end with that. So I, I'm happy to start off because um, I, I have one kind of top of mind. Um, but, you know, we work a lot with um, I, I'm working predominantly with elementary school teachers. Um, and some of the teachers that I work with have a 90-10 model. Some have a 50-50 model. Um, but let's say in that model, there's um, instruction around some very explicit and systematic instruction around uh, letter sounds. And so I'll just use in Spanish a sound um, b that is represented by uh, two letters can can form this sound. So we call these b grande, b chico, b de burro, b de vaca, more informally. Um, but the b and the v. Um, and so I might be having this lesson with my children, and we're going to hear the sound. We're going to see the different ways to represent the sound. We're going to practice writing those representations of the sound, so some handwriting instruction. We're going to see words like burro and vaca, you know, that, that have this sound. We're going to read a decodable text that has these sounds. But I am going to make sure to save some time in that lesson to share with my students that even though when we see these two sounds in Espanol, interdecodable text, and we know that they make the b sound, when you go over to English or when I go, when I myself, because I know some teachers are teaching both languages, um, when I go to the English um, code, I wanna be sure that my students know that these actually make different sounds in English. So that metacognitive piece, okay, so how do we make this sound in English? Well, let's put our lips together and make the b sound. Okay, everyone say it with me, just b. Okay, when we hear, when we see the v or uve, there's, there's different ways to say this sound, but I'm still, my students are still in Spanish, but I'm bridging to English, right? When we see this v, this letter, it's gonna make a different sound. I want you to make this sound with me. I want you to put your teeth on your lips and make the sound. Do you feel that vibration on your lips? So when we say words in English, like very, um, vegetable, you know, I, I wanna share with them words that have this sound in them. Every, if it's in the middle of a sound, um, a middle of the word. So I want my students to be able to distinguish, you know, what is different between English and Spanish. Even though this was, you know, the focal point of my Spanish lesson, these two sounds are the same, or these two letters make the same sound in Spanish, they make very different sounds in English. So that would be one example of now we're gonna kind of have a bridging component to this lesson. Well, and, you know, to kind of add to that, and Alessia took the lens of looking really at like, you know, foundational skills and looking at how that transfer as we're looking at the language comprehension side and being explicit there too. There's many opportunities for cross-linguistic transfer there, you know, especially in our early literacy grades, as we are, you know, harnessing students like listening comprehension, as we mentioned, like through a read aloud, using universal, you know, access points to make sure that students can access that information 
through a read aloud and, you know, bringing in items, you know, to actually illustrate that. I'm going to use an example that we use a lot of the times in our in our sessions, you know, as far as, you know, students learning about insects, you know, it's a it's second grade lesson that we that I love to kind of spotlight on the English and the Spanish side of reading about insects, getting students excited. What do they know? Like activating that prior knowledge. What do they know about it? Doing a really awesome read aloud, bringing a comb in to illustrate to them that, you know, it's, you know, what a grasshopper sounds like. But then as we're looking through that, bringing in words, right? You know, intentionally bringing in words as you, as you know, cognate words and looking at the morphology and prefixes and, you know, affixes even and suffixes with that story. And it, then having students ex extend that learning, like what are those insect parts? Let's do a journal. Let's write a journal. Let's discuss like with a, you know, do a think pair share with someone. Discuss, you know, think about what an insect is. Think about that read aloud and what you learned from that read aloud. Let's write a descriptive piece on, you know, from an insect's perspective. I think we underestimate that our children can do that. What we be, you know, what's important to know, our students can't do that all at the same time. It's important to have that time for that systematic skills instruction, and it's important to have that time for that building of background knowledge and then really building that connection of reading and writing. Doing that at the, at the same time, especially for our K-2 babies, just causes a lot of overload, especially in our multilingual learners. So I think, and also to speak to the fact that, and I know that we're talking about literacy, Tan, but it shouldn't just be in literacy spaces that we allow children to speak in other languages. It should be in math. It should be in social studies. It should not only be confined to literacy because literacy is in all of those areas of instruction in math and social studies in, you know, obviously our English language arts blocks, but science as well. Literacy is in all of those spaces and we need to honor all of those spaces as literacy spaces. Let's end the podcast here. What was one thing you would ask teachers to stop doing and start doing in terms of working with their multilingual students? It's called red light, green light. Red light, something to stop do, stop doing. Green light, something to start doing. You know, you know, for me, I'm sorry, Alastra, did you want to go? Simple for me, and I think I, you know, this is something that I've said throughout the podcast. What we need to stop doing is stop. Um, especially those of us who are in, 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 you know, teaching our multilingual learners, give yourself that grace not to fall into that monolingual lens and step out and do what's right for children, meaning honor the language, honor their communities, honor their families. So let's stop telling students that's not, that's not the correct way to say that. You know, that isn't how we say that in Spanish. Let's stop doing that. And I don't think that is an intentional thing, a malicious thing from, from teachers, but we have been taught what's right and what's wrong and using both languages isn't right. So let's stop doing that. And, and I'm going to reframe your question. Continue to love on these kids. Continue. Because I because teachers, that is what they're doing. Right. And so the monolingual bias is there and we get afraid as teachers to step outside of that for fear of, oh, gosh, I'm going to lose my job. Oh, gosh, what are they going to put on my some, you know, on my, you know, my summative report at the end of the year? Am I going to be able to come back? Don't be afraid to honor the students in their language, in their communities. Do what is right for children. Continue to do that. 
but please stop telling children because I've walked in classrooms that this is still happening. Así no se dice. Because then you deflate that poor child's, what you're saying to them is what you're saying is not valued. So stop doing that, but continue to stretch yourselves to learn more about the various languages and to actually, you know, be, you know, to learn more about languages so that you can become better. Because at the end of the day, when we know better, we definitely do better. Beautiful, Anna. Um, one, what I'm going to share is, um, is, and I, and I love Anna is such a child advocate <laughs> and, and I am too, but I, I'm going to take a moment here to advocate for teachers, um, because I work with teachers and, and what I see a lot of times is, um, is that teachers kind of get in their own way sometimes. So I'm going to ask teachers to stop getting in your own way, to be gentle with yourself to understand that language and literacy are lifelong trajectories. Um, I've worked with teachers who have come from other countries and, and they're uncomfortable about even, you know, their English, you know, can, can I teach students things about the English language because I'm not a native English speaker. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. On the flip side, um, a lot of teachers who work with Spanish speaking students and they're very much at the beginning of their Spanish journey um, but, you know, they, they grew up monolingual English speakers, you know, uh, be gentle with yourself, you know, some things you can, you know, you can show and model for your students. I'm also a language learner. And together, we're going to do this. Um, sometimes I might make a mistake and, and my students will call me out on it. And it's okay, show that humility, show that this is a process and that we can make mistakes, but continue to grow forward. So to stop um, limiting yourself because you are also a language learner like your students is is my recommendation to teachers you know honor honor the languages that you have um and what i would say to continue doing and we talked a little bit about it today but you know just continue providing that space for students to communicate to sense make in the language that makes sense for them even if that's just the preliminary step like anna had mentioned hey let them rehearse their is in a primary language and then you know then they can go ahead and start working on that composition in the language that they're working to learn but always providing that space i would say continue to do that give them that space to use the language that um that they feel strongest um in communicating so how can teachers work with amplify to support their bilingual students I can take this. Oh, wow. We didn't know that we, we could um, actually uh, talk about Amplify. So we're happy to do that because that's what we do um, uh, as bilingual specialists. So at Amplify, we actually have a biliteracy, a comprehensive biliteracy that we call literacy ecosystem. So our biliteracy ecosystem is comprised of assessment. So we actually have um, in English and in Spanish, a, a universal screener that has been validated uh, for benchmark assessments three times a year as well as dyslexia screening in Spanish and English and we're very proud of this. Um, it's called uh, M-Class, it's our M-Class product and we actually have a dual language report. So this is something teachers have been asking for for a very long time where they can see how is my student progressing in English alongside how they're progressing in Spanish and get some instructional guidance around how can I support cross-border So that is our assessment. We also have, you know, 
core English language arts curriculum as well as core Spanish language arts curriculum um, kindergarten through grade five. Uh, that's called Core Knowledge Language Arts in English, Caminos in Spanish. And we're so excited because um, in the fall, we now have personalized learning um, in Spanish for students called Bus Lectura, where a student, wherever they are in their trajectory of literacy, um, K1 or 2, they can get some personalized adaptive learning in Spanish. Um, and we also have that in English as well. Um, so this is sort of the, all of these parts work together because a lot of the people who have advised us in our assessment have also been working with us in our core instruction and our personalized learning. The same scope and sequence throughout all of those. So I don't know for those of you on the call, if you ever had to just grab things and create things and translate things, I know what it's like, you know, as a, as a teacher teaching two languages. It's so nice to have something that is comprehensive, that is coherent. Um, so that that's kind of how Amplify can support you and you can reach out to Anna or myself. We'd, we'd be happy to talk to you. Well, I'll end with saying thank you in this way. Thank you, muchas gracias, para teaching us how to hacer mejor, how to do better. <laughs> thank you for, thank you por su invitación. To come and speak with you. Muy amable, Tan. Un placer. Yes, thank you so much for reaching out to us. We were both very honored that you asked and jumped at the chance to be part of this um, this kind of journey with you. So we really appreciate and we're so excited to be here with you. So thank you so much for having us on today. El placer es mío. Muchas gracias. Gracias. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast. My invitation is to check out my three courses on English Learner Portal. One is on creating the conditions for MLs to thrive, one on teacher collaboration, and one based on my co-authored book with Beth Skelton called Long-Term Success for Experienced Multilinguals. Now onto our recap. Cross-linguistic transfer seems to be one of the keys to biliteracy. We take something from students' languages, such as the concept of decoding, or the concept of a full stop, or the M sound. We then have students compare that concept to English. Does your language have something like a full stop? Does your language use decoding? Does your language have M sounds? After the discussion, if we find similarities, we ask students to intentionally use these in their English. When there are differences, we ask students to notice the differences and be conscious of them when they're using them in English. When there are differences, we ask students to notice the differences. I guess this is another example of how students' languages form the stable foundation to acquire another language. By having students use one language to make sense of another language, that's how we cultivate and nurture multilingual and multiliterate students. Thank you for listening. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.